This is Intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. Florida's 2021 legislative session ended last week with a flurry of controversial bills in the final stretch of the session that defined a contentious two months in Tallahassee for lawmakers, from the bill focused on voting to legislation targeting the participation of transgender athletes in school and college sports. We'll unpack what it all means with political analysts Dick Batchelor and Frank Torres. Plus, we'll have a preview of 2022 with candidates for Senate and Governor testing the waters in what's expected to be a tumultuous election campaign. Well, joining me is uh, Democratic political analyst Dick Batchelor. Dick, welcome back to Intersection. Thank you. Good to be back. And we're also joined by Frank Torres, our Republican political analyst. Uh, Frank, welcome back to you as well. Always great to be here. Well, first of all, a question for both of you. I'm going to start with you, Dick. Were you surprised that we didn't go into extra time or there uh, wasn't an extra session set or an extended session set aside for something COVID-related this year? Uh, No, I was not surprised at all. In fact, the the only thing that looked like it might slow the session down was having too much money. Recall there's about $10 billion coming in from the federal government they were trying to figure out how to spend that money. That's the only thing that slowed it down, but they were not going to be an extended session. That's something very emblematic. The Republican leadership demands that get out on time because it doesn't uh, sell very well with the public. So I was not surprised they got there on time. I'm surprised at some of the issues that almost put them over time, that being having too much money to spend. Mm-hmm. Frank, uh, your kind of thoughts on where we ended up? Well, uh, I, I got a few of them. Uh, it, it did, that was a really bizarre uh, whole stretch leading down to uh, to signing guy. It seemed like, you know, we had a little bit of, uh, of time, a little bit of extra time, that we started circling back to bills, one of them which I'm sure you're going to be talking about here in a couple of minutes. And uh, and then, we, you know, we start seeing legislators, the uh, legislators with this strange movement just trying to get all sorts of things passed. And, and uh, it was really uh, both interesting and a little bit scary. Mm-hmm. Those uh, last couple of days to see uh, what they were going to pull off before uh, everybody else would be went home. Well, let's talk about some of those bills. One of them, an education bill that ended up getting a few things kind of smuggled into its contents to the uh, dismay of Democrats. And because uh, this was an issue that got a lot of headlines in the last couple of weeks, Dick Batchelor, the uh, ban on uh, participation by trans athletes at the high school level and college level in, in um team sports. So what do you make of that? Well, it looked like a solution in search of a problem. Uh, I haven't heard any complaints in Florida about this issue. I don't think there's any testimony uh, to this effect. So they were trying to, you know, pass something that appealed to the right base, the right wing of the base of the party. And and let me just add that uh, because thematically, if you look at what Governor DeSantis was doing, he had full participation of the Republican leadership in the House and Senate to get his agenda done. His agenda, if you start looking at it, as Frank said, we'll talk about some of the issues individually. His issues is re-election, re- re- but really more importantly, what does his campaign look like when he runs for president in uh, three years? That's what he's really looking at. So if you look at whether it's the anti-right legislation, if you look mm-hmm. at the voter suppression legislation, this transgender legislation, it all is about can you satisfy and appeal to that Trump base? That's all it's about. So let me pick up on that then. Uh, Frank Torres, does, what does that tell you about the state of the Republican Party, that uh, we have a governor who is in 
skeptic's view, signing legislation with a, a kind of a longer view in mind, maybe beyond the actual impacts of the legislation itself? Well, I mean, if there's one plus, plus it shows we're working together. Um, but, you know, I'm still just trying to find out, I'm still trying to find out who this, this legislation is for, uh, the transgender bill. Mm-hmm. Is it laying foundations for campaigns? Uh, into the coming years, most, you know, more predominantly primary campaigns uh, for the years coming up, which would include the president's race in 2024, should, um, should Governor DeSantis decide to run. Um, but, you know, it, it just seems like there was just so much symbolic legislation, things we were passing just for the sake of passing them and for being able to say that we're conservative. And, you know, we had a couple of extra days there towards the end. I would have liked to have seen our legislature go to work. Uh, more details involving pandemic relief, uh, you know, more small business, uh, more small business aid, or more tools for small businesses, especially, you know, some of the, the restaurants and, and hospitality uh, industry in the state to try to rebound from this pandemic. But uh, you know, they, they decide to, to focus more on the symbolic stuff, and it's kind of a head scratcher and a little bit frustrating at the same time. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, um, the the voting bill then. Uh, this is a bill sponsored by um, Dennis Baxley in North Central Florida. Uh, again, I, I've heard the argument from Democrats, particularly that it was a a solution in search of a problem, which is the the expression used to describe the the other bill we we're just talking about, Dick Batchelor. Um, what about the implications of this bill, though? Because a lot of people have come out and said this is this is a dangerous precedent to be setting. It's um it's not a good idea. It's going to hurt. Republican voters as well as Democratic voters. How do you see this actually playing out? Well, before I answer that question, let me go back to one point. Uh, it was very interesting to note, you know, Caitlyn Jenner is announced to run for governor of California. And uh, he, she, recently came out uh, mm-hmm. and said, uh, Caitlyn Jenner said that uh, if you're a biological boy, you shouldn't be in the girls' sports. So that's that's interesting coming from somebody in the Jenner family. And I just wanted to point that out. But uh, to your point, and this is one piece of legislation, too, as part of the going to the red meat crowd and the Republican base. Governor DeSantis, after the 2020 election, came out and said, this is the best-run election in our history, in our nation. It is open. It works. Drop boxes works, early mail-in ballots work. It all works. However, we're going to change the law. Mm-hmm. Is it going to improve the law, or is it going to make it more difficult to vote? It will make it more difficult to vote, primarily targeted at people of color. That's what this is about. Again, we don't need to get tied up in the minutiae. We don't need to get tied up in the spokes. Go back, take a look at it from the 50,000-foot level. You really want the Democrats not to vote, so you want to pass restrictions. One is the drop box hours, you know, and then 24-hour uh, uh, security for that. But here's the one that really strikes me, and I think the voters really find appalling. If you hand out water to someone within 150 feet of the polling place, you know, it's a, it will be a crime. How do you uh, read that, Frank Torres? Well, you know, I mean, anything we can do to you know improve the security of elections, you know, I'm going to support, especially here in Florida. We've had so many problems here in the past. Um, I think we're going to see more people sort of start moving towards, you know, mail-in legislation or mail-in voting. And as far as distance around, you know, polling places and, and approaching voters, we have restrictions like that now. 
mean, mm-hmm. you're not allowed within a certain amount of feet, you know, within the uh, within these polling locations on election day. That's why whenever we drive past uh, to vote, we see uh, <laughs> about 100 campaign workers within X amount of feet of the polling place. And then it's a ghost town all the way until you walk up to actually register or unless you're standing in a line. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I think anything, especially with our reputation here in Florida, that can improve the uh, the security conditions around elections is always worth, you know, something pursuing. Now, the evidence in the past in regards to fraud, uh, that's a, it's a little skimpy. You know, there's not, there's not a lot there. Uh, but as far as, you know, anything that can improve the, the security um, of the results, especially with, you know, the, the lack of uh, lack of faith that people are having in the system and, and with all this uh, with such a wild election day environment uh, that we've had the last couple of cycles, uh, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. Okay, let me ask you about that lack of faith, though, because I can hear the argument. The lack of faith in elections, I mean, doesn't that really just come down to a drumbeat over the last four years from the former president to basically undermine people's trust in the election. So it seems like uh, creating a bill to respond to that is is not really altogether in good faith. I wonder what your thoughts are on that, Frank Torres. Well, I'm looking at it strictly from a perspective. I could care less what the former president has to say about, you know, uh, his wild conspiracy theories and, and all of that thing. That election is done and gone. What I'm thinking about is I'm thinking about conditions like 2018, where, you know, we had the situations down south and we had such close you know read counts in those regards and i'm thinking mm-hmm. about other you know individual situations that polling places around the states um does it you know and in, in those regards is which i'm considering the uh, you know uh bolstering election security or election conditions uh around the state not in regards to anything any conspiracy theories with the former president or any of his uh more uh, enthusiastic um, conspiracy uh, pouring for supporters have to say. Mm. Hey, Matt, let me add, let me add this. I'm sure. going to go back again. There, there is a conspiracy theory on the right, and that is that uh, you know there were 56 bills filed in Republican legislatures across the country to basically make it more difficult to vote. The overarching goal is to go back and satisfy President Trump. I mean, 71% of the Republicans still think the election was stolen, which is absolutely bizarre to me, speaking of conspiracy theories. But the fact is the the legislators in a very coordinated fashion, the Republican legislators, are going to pass legislation that's going to appeal to the Trump base. They're going to do anti-white legislation. They're already doing it. They're going to do voter suppression legislation. They're already doing it. Mm -hmm. So they've got their talking sheet across the country. The Republican Party does it. Anything they can do to tap down the out the outcome it, according to less hours if you look at it, the hispanic vote should be make easier to vote for the republicans because they're doing better than they have done historically secondly in uh, early voting and absentee voting the republicans used to outperform the democrats so there's some republicans in the legislature said what did we do we might have we might have taken ourselves hostage hmm. and, and made it easier for democrats so, but it is all coordinated as though conspiracy to it is this factually coordinated efforts to suppress voting. Mm. Well, I guess we'll just have to see how that actually plays out in 2022. I wanted to um, change gears just for a moment or two and ask you about a couple of other things simmering away. One of them, the executive order signed by Governor DeSantis this week that essentially preempts local governments from setting their own rules around coronavirus restrictions. Um, a bit of an outcry from, from local leaders on that. Um, Dick Batchelor, 
How do you actually see this this uh, kind of playing out in real time? Uh, do you think, or does it seem to you that Orange County, for example, will just keep doing what it's been doing in terms of reaching out to businesses, trying to encourage them or chide them in some cases to do the right thing when it comes to coronavirus, you know, social distancing, masking, etc.? This gets back to the uh, governor's presidential platform, and that is he he plays on the edge when it comes to the COVID and the vaccines and getting the vaccines out of the mask wearing. And I think uh, Mayor Jerry Demick basically said, uh, I don't need the governor to tell me what's safe for my mm-hmm. uh, my community. We need to wear a mask. In fact, Dr. Nino, uh, Pino, who is the county health officer, basically said, look, we, we cannot get to the, uh, the herd uh, immunity if we stop Wearing, uh, stop wearing masks and stop getting shot. So you've got to be very careful because now what you have is a lot of the population has been vaccinated, but a lot of young people have not. And those are the ones that usually go out, they party, have a good time, there's no mask. So you run the risk. So does more people get it? So you have herd immunity? Yeah, but some of these people are going to die. So I, I think I agree with the paradigmics. I think you need to be cautious. You need to rely on the science. And I think we're moving the request for masks goes too far, and I would hope, and I noticed on the street today, a lot of people were still wearing the mask. I would hope, notwithstanding the governor's uh, new new policy, that people continue to wear masks to protect themselves and others. Mm -hmm. Let me ask then about some upcoming races in 2022. Um, This week, we're taping this on Tuesday, and today, uh, former Governor Charlie Crist announced his campaign for governor, right? So, um, Dick Batchelor, how do you see his chances? Uh, not very good. I want to go back and make one point on uh, Jerry Demings and uh, and the governor. And uh, there's a little political underlying piece, and that is who's thinking about maybe also running for governor mm-hmm. with the last name Demings. Uh, so it, it it makes it very interesting politics when you take on the spouse of somebody who might be running against you. So there's politics and everything, and that's mm-hmm. uh, it's obvious. I, I I don't I don't know if. Uh, Frankly, if uh, Val Demings, uh, Congresswoman Val Demings, gets in the race, uh, she's really gotten a lot of notoriety. She's on the Judiciary Committee. She's one of the impeachment uh, uh, team members who prosecuted the president on the impeachment. Mm-hmm. Are we talking about Senate or governor, though? No, but she's talking about possibly running for governor or Senate. She hasn't decided mm-hmm. yet. But if she runs for governor or United States Senate, she'll have a national play. Stephanie Murphy's also really talking more about the running for the Senate seat, mm-hmm. which you would have two you know, vacant seats here, notwithstanding reapportionment. But Charlie, uh, Charlie's got some stability, but the fact is uh, the U.S. Senate race and the governor's race of Florida is going to be a national race. It's not going to be unlike South Carolina in the Senate races where they spent $100 million. DeSantis mm-hmm. uh, is sitting with $9 million to the bank for his reelection campaign. And that's a lot of money, but it's not if you compare it to 100 million. So it, either way, I don't know whether Charlie Chris is going to get a, a lift or not on this, but if he gets uh, faced by somebody like, uh, you know, uh, Val Demons or Stephanie Murphy, he, he'll get pushed back because I think people want a new, fresh face on the scene. What about RMS Ayala? That's another name that's uh, floating around out there, and there's a, a social media ad kind of teasing at something. We're not quite sure what. So uh, what? Do you think of her chances either for governor or potentially U.S. Senate? I think she definitely plays towards more of the uh, you know progressive angle of the Democratic Party, and I think she's going to bring an extra element of that race. 
certainly the social justice angle will certainly play to her uh, to her favor. And in this climate, that may help. I think one potential difficulty she'll have to uh, to answer for uh, as far as electability in front of the general elect- electorate um, against a Ron DeSantis or Marco Rubio would be her handling of the Marquise Lloyd uh, case. Mm-hmm. I think that's a big concern that I'm sure her team or her advisors are hopefully are, are working on right now. But, you know, I think she's an interesting extra angle, and I think that um, she'll push more moderate uh, candidates like Charlie Crist and, and potentially Val Denny, a law enforcement officer, you know, a career law enforcement officer herself, former chief of police, um, into that arena a little bit more. But I think it's an absolutely fascinating uh, election picture we've got, we've got shaking up. Mm-hmm. I've been scrolling up and down social media, and it's exciting stuff. We've got some great candidates, especially some from here in Orlando, and that's always good to see Okay, and we'll be uh, following that campaign as it unfolds here on Intersection. Uh, Dick Batchelor, Democratic political analyst, thank you so much for joining us again. Thank you very much. And we're also joined by Frank Torres, Republican political analyst. Frank, thank you as well. Always good to be here. Up next, tourism numbers are picking up, but just how long will it take for travel to get back to pre-pandemic levels? We'll check in with Visit Orlando's Cassandra Mate when we return. This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. As tourism numbers begin to pick up again, Central Florida leaders are cautiously optimistic about the impact on the region's tourism-driven economy. But even as more travellers from other states head to Florida on holiday or for business, the return of international travel to pre-pandemic levels is expected to take quite a bit longer. Joining us to talk more about the outlook for the next few months and how vaccinations factor into getting passengers back on planes and tourists back on the road is Cassandra Mate. She's the CEO of Visit Orlando. Cassandra, nice to have you back again. Thanks for joining me. Absolutely. Glad to be here. So I want to just play a little bit of sound from Orange County Mayor Jerry Demings. He talked this week about the importance of the tourism industry to Central Florida's economy. Here's what he said. The power of travel is more critical than ever to restore our local economy, rebuild jobs, and reconnect Orlando with the world. The tourists who come to our region generate approximately $3,000 in state sales tax for every household in Orange County. That pays for schools, the roads we drive on, and the public services that keep us healthy and safe. It also provides funding for arts, cultural and sporting events, and the venues that we enjoy here within Orange County. So uh, interesting to hear Mayor Deming's thoughts there, Cassandra, and obviously he's quite keen to see a return to normalcy where tourism is concerned. Um, What do you think it's going to take to get back to some semblance of normalcy when it comes to the number of visitors uh, coming into Orlando and the central Florida area? So there's no doubt, um, and we all know this, we, we live here and we know that travel and tourism is the number one business sector of our community, help driving and fueling our economy. Um, when there, but there is no doubt that the pandemic certainly impacted our industry in, in such big ways. 
but we are seeing signs that we are actually on that road to recovery. Uh, when you look at spring break numbers, as well as what we're projecting for the summer, while they're not pre-pandemic numbers, uh, we are very optimistic um, that we're going to have a healthy and strong summer travel season. Um, and that's on one segment, meaning the leisure travel, people coming here for their vacations. But we also are seeing meetings and conventions returning to Orlando. Yeah, on that front too, I, I read a stat about some 84 conventions, uh, nearly a million visitors coming to Orlando through the end of the year. Is that sort of in line with what you were expecting when you were looking at things, say, December last year? Uh, no, actually, um, it, it is actually pretty stabilized because what we're seeing is that there are some groups that have relocated from other regions in the country. Um, so it is pretty much stabilized of what we had expected um, for the second half of the year. But to be sure, obviously, the first half of 2021 was impacted because we had cancellations or groups that were relocating to either later dates. Uh, in within the year or later years. Um, but one of the things that we have seen is that there's groups that have relocated from other areas. How important is it then to have the convention centre back to being a convention centre? Because for quite some time that was a hub for vaccination. So is it is it pretty critical just to have that back to business as usual? Well, the fact that the meetings and conventions sector of the travel industry, our segment, is so important, um, I think it is very critical. Uh, you know, the Orange County Convention Center is a great partner of Visit Orlando, and we're very proud to be the sales arm of all things travel, meetings, and conventions for the building. Um, but I will tell you, it represents a $3 billion economic impact to our community, the, the facility alone. So it's definitely an economic generator. What is your take uh, on this notion of vaccine hesitancy? And, and I wonder what role you think the tourism industry may have to play in encouraging vaccinations, or does it not have a role to play at all? Does it simply step back and say, let the market sort it out? You know, Visit Orlando is actually partnering with Orange County with the promotion of I've Got My Shot campaign. And so we are encouraging uh, individuals, workers, the community to get their vaccination because think about it. When you're a traveler and you're coming and staying in a hotel, if you know that the majority of that workforce is vaccinated, that gives you some more additional confidence in your decision to travel. So we are encouraging. I, I think that we have a role just to uh, be a resource on where you can get vaccinated, the importance of vaccination. And um, certainly um, we're not here to weigh in on if it should be mandated or not. Uh, but the reality is we are about making sure that visitors that come into our community feel safe and secure. And one of the ways to ensure that is through people getting vaccinated in our own backyard. Are you doing some polling too? I mean, are you surveying visitors to see, you know, what their level of comfort is and whether, um, you know, a, a, a community's vaccination level would factor into their decision to travel there or not? So there's a couple of things. We follow a study uh, through destination analysts each week. That, and, and, in fact, at our program today at the Orange County Convention Center, we have their president and CEO giving us some additional uh, insights on traveler sentiment. And we know today that safety and health is 
still the number one factor on when a traveler is choosing a destination uh, to come to. Um, so we know that that's important. We also know that when uh, there are reports that a community has high percentage rates of vaccination, then there is a perception that that area is top choice because they know that they can travel there safely and be healthy. And, you know, we saw some of that too from um, Mayor Demings this week, and it's been talking about it before as well, um, talking about that level of vaccination. I think it was around 44% or a little higher than that Monday of this week. Um, the county clearly quite keen to get that up above 50% and beyond. Uh, does that sort of tie into to, to what you're saying in terms of, of what travellers are saying and, 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 you know, what that means for their decision to, to visit a destination? Yeah, and, and, and you're exactly right. As of May 3rd, Orange County had reached, I think it was it's 44.5% of all Orange County residents having received at least one dose of the vaccine. And so we do know it correlates directly with travelers feeling more confident to travel to a region. So that's also why with at Visit Orlando, you're going to see or hear messaging about the importance of safety, following protocols, and, and doing what you need to do uh, so you can get back to enjoying and making memories with your family and friends right here in Orlando. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the split between domestic and international travel, because obviously there are some countries right now where they're experiencing a surge in cases. Um, so how important is international travel to Orlando's tourism sector and you know how, how much of the, the heavy lifting, I guess, does the domestic travel sector have to do in the meantime to sort of bring those tourism numbers back up again? So when we look at travel, there's there's three sectors, right? There's the leisure domestic travel, there's the meetings and conventions, and then there's the international traveler. And we know that there is going to be a long road to full recovery um, to reach those international travelers. So the international traveler is very important to our region. Uh, number one, we invite the world uh, to experience Orlando, uh, but we also know that international visitors, they stay longer. They usually, you know, enjoy an entire region versus just one destination. So it is very important to the local and regional economy that we get the international traveler back. But the reality is, is that that's going to be the last segment to come back for a variety of reasons uh, that you listed, whether it's regulations, uh, whether it's how we reopen our borders uh, and make it easy for international travelers to come back to the U.S. Where Visit Orlando falls within this is we want to be ahead of our competition. So we're continually talking to our customer base in our key, the key target countries, such as the U.K., so when they are ready, um, that they will choose Orlando over any other U.S. destination. Right now of our visitation, uh, 91% of our visitor base is from the U.S., today. So um, I think that that's, that's very important because you, you know it, that there's current challenges of overseas travel. Um, but again, part of our role is to be proactive for when their time is right um, for, to welcome back that international traveler. Last time I talked to you, you were talking about a, a, an advertising campaign to, to bring in domestic travelers and reaching out to people in other states um, kind of celebrating 
more highlighting the the advantages of visiting Orlando. Um, what about that idea for international then? Like, at what point do you start to say now would be a good time to say launch a, a campaign in the UK or or Australia or somewhere like that? So data and research actually drives all of our decisions. Um, at the When we knew probably a year ago was not the right time to even talk to the domestic potential traveler about coming to Orlando because it was not the right time. Um, but then as research started, we knew January was going to be the right time to start talking to the domestic consumer travelers. So it's the same. We're looking at data. We're looking at what's happening in our key target international markets. And when that time is right, um, for example, when restrictions start lifting, when numbers start uh, changing regarding uh, the pandemic, then we'll start talking um, to the international traveler um, in a much broader and public way. Um, You know, there's there's a point that you also have to be sensitive to what is happening in those countries. And, you know, we certainly don't want to take advantage of of some of the things that are happening in some of these key countries. Cassandra, I'm interested to know your thoughts too on what's happening here in the in the um, tourism economy and the sort of ad- adjacent industries in central Florida. I mean, there are stories about hotels and restaurants struggling to attract staff. So how much of a problem is that likely to be in the near term as those tourism numbers and visitation numbers do start to tick up again? You know, we I think we're we're definitely having a lot of uh, communication and conversation about the workforce issue and the fact that there's a labor issue. But I think it's not just in the travel industry; it is the variety of different sectors uh, that rep- that are represented in Orange County. Um, but it, nonetheless, it is an issue. Um, but what I am seeing is that um, many of our businesses are looking at ways to be more attractive to the workforce, whether it's giving a signing bonus or or negotiating a retention bonus, as an example. Um, and in some ways, there might be a rate increase. So um, I think that the industry and, and, and the uh, free market will definitely adjust to that. Uh, but what I will tell you from a visitor standpoint that we've got to be careful is that the workforce issue could turn into a customer service issue. And so it, it, it has a domino effect. And I think that uh, we, we've got to be careful you know, there are some businesses, restaurants that have decided because they don't have the labor force that they're just not opening seven days a week. So they're adjusting their operating hours. So you're seeing the industry react. Um, and I do think, you know, when you look at Central Florida, uh, there is um, an opportunity for jobs and, and growth in jobs. Uh, but I do think, uh, you know, we're going to start seeing some changes, hopefully, at the end of summer and in the fall. But there are jobs to be had in the travel sector. Right. Places like Sanford, Orlando International Airport, for example, they're on a hiring run this week at least. I wanted to just ask another question, though, if I could, about the when you say that a workforce issue could turn into a customer service issue, a customer relations issue. What do you mean by that? Well, think about this. You know, right now we are so accustomed, and, and we as the consumer, we are changing the, our behavior, right? When you go to a restaurant, it's very touchless. Um, you, you have very limited interaction uh, with 
restaurant staff. But I think the reality is, is that if, if a restaurant or if an attraction or a hotel is understaffed, you know, there are people that are having to wear multiple hats, do multiple jobs. And so, um, you know, and they're, and they're doing things that they haven't, you know, traditionally been doing in their role. And so I'm just saying that we've got to get people back to work because it could be a domino effect on customer service issues. How important then are theme parks and all of this? I mean, they've been operating under restrictions or limitations on the number of guests. Are you just sort of waiting for them to say we're ready to to reopen to full capacity or at least kind of increase that capacity? Is that sort of the next um, gateway and the the return to normal? Well, you know, I think as we've seen throughout the pandemic, our theme parks have been leaders in establishing, you know, their safety protocols, their business protocols, um, and obviously they make their own decision on how they wish to operate. But um, I know that they're, they've been very thorough. I've experienced myself. They've been very measured in a safe way. So I think once the decision is made um, to either uh, open to a higher capacity uh, or whatever those decisions are going to be made, they're going to be very thoughtful uh, with safety in mind. So we're very excited that, you know, the future is bright. When you look at the numbers, and I'm just thinking back to a comment you made earlier about um, the stability and the convention numbers um, through the end of the year, uh, like, is there any part of you that wonders, you know, could could things turn bad again? Or or, or are you fairly confident that we're, we're fairly well set? Because, you know, those numbers could have, the coronavirus numbers at least, could still go up again. So does that sort of keep you up at night? Well, of course. I mean, we're still in the pandemic today, right? Um, But the reality is, Matthew, I'm very uh, perpetually optimistic, and I think the future is bright, and I think we're on that road to recovery. And so, you know, I'm moving forward, and Visit Orlando is moving forward as you know, uh, we are we are going to see growth and we're going to see opportunities. And I think it's going to be balanced as as the country becomes more vaccinated. That even increases um, the opportunity for growth in our future. Well, Cassandra Mate is the CEO of Visit Orlando. Cassandra, thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate it. Thanks, Matthew. Take care. Coming up next, a look back at a quarter century of writing about religion, politics and crime in Florida. Mark Pinsky contemplates his career in journalism and looks ahead to the next chapter. That's when we return. This is Intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. Mark Pinsky has been writing about Florida for more than 25 years. Pinsky, who covered religion with the Orlando Sentinel for a large part of that stint, was also a crime reporter, and he's also written several non-fiction works, including an examination of the cold case murder of Nancy Morgan. Pinsky is leaving the Sunshine State and moving to North Carolina. I caught up with him to talk about religion, politics, and the next chapter of his writing career. Mark Pinsky, it's very nice to speak to you again. Thanks for joining me. Happy to be here. So... This is a departure from Florida, but you're not leaving the world of journalism altogether, right? That's correct. I'll be I'll be writing, continue to write. Um, it's what motivates me in a professional sense, and uh, what motivates me in a political sense as well. So I'll continue to be freelancing as well as working on books. What do you think you're going to miss about the environment? I guess the journalism environment or the range of things you can write about as a resident of Florida once once you leave? 
I think being immersed in the world of uh, evangelical Christianity, I mean, I'll certainly miss my former uh, colleagues and friends from the Orlando Sentinel, but I think coming here 26 years ago, uh, my eyes were kind of open to a world I knew nothing about, and I became immersed in it, and, I, and I'll miss it, actually, when I'm gone. And just sort of reflecting on what you've covered in the world of evangelical Christianity for a start, how much has that changed in, in Florida, at least, and how, how important is Florida now as a, a home for many of these mega churches? I think uh, one of the first set of stories that I did when I came here 26 years ago was the, um, the migration of major evangelical institutions uh, to Central Florida, beginning with Campus Crusade for Christ, but uh, ministries involving Africa, involving Latin America. Um, that was uh, the beginning. And um, I guess, I think what, what I liked about it was that on the one hand, I was, I was approaching uh, these institutions as well as the, the, the mega churches in the area, particularly First Baptist of Orlando and Northland. I was um, reporting on them on two levels. On one level, I was interviewing the leaders um, with, uh, on the phone or in person with the mediation of the reporter's notebook. But at the same time, I was meeting um, grassroots evangelicals, suburban evangelicals uh, in my neighborhood, uh, PTA, public schools, scouts, uh, rec, rec athletics with my kids as our kids grew up. And I didn't have the reporter's notebook. I just met people and got to know them. Uh, not in a transactional way. With, with my reporting, um, I wanted to get some information and the people I was interviewing wanted to convey a certain amount of, of information, but my daily life was informing my, my reporting. Do you feel like the, the evangelical church has the same kind of influence on politics now that it did a quarter of a century ago? Oh, I think it's even, even greater. Um, Central Florida is a good example, particularly of uh, suburban Sunbelt evangelicalism. And um, in the time that I was here, their influence both within the state and within the nation gradually grew until it became a really potent segment of the, of the political uh, equation. I first began writing about Southern politics, if you can believe it, in 1972 for national audience Senate races. And so I've been, I've been coming in and out of, of Southern politics in a secular sense uh, since 1972. But in the last 25, 26 years, I've watched and reported on the political rise and the influence of particularly white evangelical, uh, sunbelt suburban evangelicals. And one name that sticks out, particularly over the last four years at least, is Paula White, who was uh, kind of anointed the White House spiritual advisor. And you had been seeking an interview with her for quite some time. Just tell us a little bit of the backstory of that and, and how you finally kind of got to sit down and, and, and talk with her. Well, the backstory was I wanted to do a piece about her before she was appointed. These were several years before she was appointed to the position that she had in the, in the White House. And I was very interested, and I kept requesting an interview, and I never got one, not in a formal sense. Finally, I just went to church, which is what I learned to do with other religious leaders, just got in the reception line after the church, uh, after the service was over. And she was very polite, very friendly. She said she would be happy to set up an interview, and then it never happened. Her PR firm never let that happen. So as a journalist, you can't let someone veto themselves as a subject. So I continued to write about her, 
and I would hear back from time to time that she liked or didn't like, but still no interview. And then I would say three years ago, there was a reception held by Orlando Magazine for people who were in, the, in their 50 most powerful influential issue. And the subjects were invited to a kind of an open air cocktail party at, uh, at the Mall Millennium. And when I went there with my wife, I noticed that she showed up. And I was chatting with another of my evangelical friends, the Reverend Joel Hunter, and I thought, hmm, here's an opportunity. So I called, I asked Joel to come over, and I introduced Joel to Paula, and she was very friendly. She said, um, she's glad to meet me. She read my stuff, and we should get together for an interview, and then there was never any, <laughs> any, any interview. So she was elusive over the years, but that didn't keep me from I think probably writing more about her than any other uh, secular journalist uh, in the country. It's kind of interesting too, I mean, reflecting on that, somebody having a, a very kind of central role in some ways as a spiritual advisor, but it, it, at the same time, it's really, a lot of it's just about getting votes, right? And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what we saw in the most recent election, particularly in the state of Florida, which uh, you know went fairly comprehensively for President Trump, um, to the disappointment of a lot of Democrats in the state of Florida, how how much of a role do you think the the church or uh, evangelical uh, churches and their congregations played in, in that election? I think uh, white evangelicals played a critical role uh, in in this election, as they have in recent elections in Florida. Um, I think also um, the shift in the in the in the Latino vote was also critical in in uh, Trump's margin of probably more than 300,000 votes in Florida. But I don't think any Republican can win uh, without the support of, of white evangelicals. And in the last election, they supported uh, President Trump by around 80 uh, percent, the last figures that, that I saw. I've always felt that there was a small percentage of uh, white evangelicals who were more moderate um, on issues like climate change and um, various issues, not abortion, who, if the Democrats were smart, they would try to peel off. I thought more of that would happen, but it didn't happen this time. Uh, even so, with with 80% of white evangelicals supporting Trump, that still meant that fully 20% uh, uh, supported Biden, and the last election supported Hillary, who, claimed, who came with you know a lot of baggage with her, uh, whereas uh, Biden is a religious Catholic and um, and certainly lives a, a different kind of personal life than um, uh, than President Trump has, um, which apparently is not the character issue. Apparently, was not so so critical for white evangelicals when it comes to politics. Well, Mark, I've I've spoken to you numerous times on Intersection over the years, and and uh, a few years ago, I talked to you about a book that you'd written called uh, Meter on the Mountain. It's a it's about a a cold case murder, and uh, you've written about a few true crime mysteries. Do you have some more uh, on the back burner that you're hoping to dig into in the next phase of your career? I do. I have a book coming out next spring, another nonfiction crime book, um, another gruesome tale, unfortunately, but that's what what comes to me. It um, involves a gifted young man who was at Vanderbilt, and after his sophomore year, he began slowly drifting into madness as it turned out and uh, he ended up um, murdering his wealthy parents in uh, Montgomery Alabama with an axe handle which for some people um, 
brought up echoes of the Lizzie, the infamous Lizzie Borden case uh, early in the, in America's tradition. So the uh, it's it's called um, Drifting into Darkness, and it it um, like like a Meadow on the Mountain. It involves me trying to solve the case in this case assisting police in both this case and another murder that uh, was somehow attacked. So it's odd. I go back and forth between uh, murder and religion. <laughs> when, when, when I first was moved from, from the crime beat to the religion beat, people asked me what the difference was. I said, well, jokingly, you know, I was meeting a better class of felon in, in my new beat. <laughs> I, I mean, they're both rich seams for, for content, right? I mean, there's, there's a, a wealth of stories in, in both. I kind of wonder, though, do you feel like enough attention is being paid to religion i mean it seems to have fallen by the wayside a little bit as a beat that you know newspapers focus on and that might be partly just because of the hollowing out a little bit of the newspaper industry and the fact that they have fewer uh, reporters to devote to some of these beats that's correct as um, as the regional newspaper industry has imploded um, religion was one of the first beats to go or to be combined into other portfolios and i think um there might have been some weariness about it. I think people might have gotten tired, particularly about reading what may have read like the same story over and over again. I, I feel like there's always something new and interesting about religion, but the public's taste for it seems to have uh, declined somewhat. And I don't know, it's a chicken and egg. Is it declining because there are fewer religion reporters digging up with stories or are there fewer religion reporters because people are just tired of the, subject and have, and have heard enough or read enough of the subject. I'm curious too, your thoughts, Mark, on the influence of the pandemic on the church. I mean, a lot of these places that you've reported on, a lot of those places would have had to sort of put things on hold for the last 12 months, although, of course, we read about some that didn't and, and defiance of some of the, uh, the kind of social distancing regulations. But do you feel like the pandemic may have some kind of lasting influence on people's willingness to gather at places of worship in person at least or do you see some kind of long-term influence whether it's driving more people to worship online i think um being able to to worship online has opened many doors for many people of faith uh institutionally i think uh COVID has been crushing almost every house of of worship that has had to stop in-person services others have reached out they've been technically innovative I know um, City of Destiny, Paula White's Church, has been very much involved in food distribution. The problem is, is that nationally, even before COVID, there's been a, you know, a longstanding decline in institutional affiliation with organized religion. And that has not, no group has escaped that, even evangelicals and Pentecostals. And I'm afraid that the the period, this, this interregnum of not a year or more, of not being able to worship a person, is going to accelerate that trend. Now, for those people for whom in-person worship is fulfilling and supporting, I think when we are over this, they'll recover and they'll find a place. But what I see is, across the board, denominationally, faith-wise, um, I see consolidation of a house of worship that are no longer financially viable. And so the, the fewer people who care will have a place, and it will be very important to them. But in the, in the aggregate, I think the trend line is, is, is negative. 
and, and the, uh, the pollsters call these people, particularly millennials, who was, was the first sort of canary in the coal mine. They were called the nuns, which is to say N-O-N-E, that they no longer affiliated with organized religion, but they also identified themselves as spiritual people. And no one has been able to figure out how to make that trend work to preserve organized religion in America. I just wanted to go back to a point you made earlier about Paula White's church. Um, had a conversation not too long ago with Steve McKinnon from St. Luke's United Methodist Church about the role that that church has had over the last 12 months in helping out people in the performing arts community with a, a food drive that happens each week. And it seems to me like you've got a, a kind of a dichotomy where, um, yeah, maybe churches are, are suffering because their congregations can't get together and therefore that's not great for them financially or just holistically. But at the same time, people are leaning more on, on non-profits, including churches, because there's such a great need. And it seems like that sort of has, in some ways, maybe kind of refocusing what churches are about or some of their mission over the last 12 months. It, it emphasizes what's historically known in America as the social gospel. And that is that the religious community, mainly the church in this country, reaches out when there's crisis and uh, fulfills a role. And they, from that action, they will often derive members or people who come who had no connection with the church other than they helped me when I was in trouble. Maybe I'll, you know, I'll give them a chance now that it's possible. On the other hand, this increasingly sophisticated technical outreach means, I think, more and more people will be able to participate, if not in person, if it's raining, if it's cold, if they don't like to drive at night. My own congregation, the Congregation of, of Reformed Judaism, has, has had more people, in a sense, attending their Friday night services, for example, under COVID than we ever had um, before COVID. And I think this opens another door for self-preservation um, and also to keep people connected who otherwise would have to turn on the TV, you know, if their congregation or their denomination uh, paid for services. Now, with, with online streaming, it, it opens the door for many people who may have been, might have been isolated and who couldn't participate in person. Well, Mark Pinsky, um, it's a pleasure as always to talk to you and best of luck for the upcoming book and the move. Thank you very much. And I'm hoping to be back in town uh, maybe next January, February, or March, and maybe we can chat again. I'll be flogging books when I come back. Support for Intersection comes from Advent Health and from our listeners. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find archived episodes of Intersection online at wmfe.org slash intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. You can follow me on Twitter over at Matthew underscore Petty. Thanks so much for listening.